Hey folks, Preet here. We're following the latest updates relating to former President Donald Trump's federal indictments. DOJ is seeking a protective order to limit Trump's ability to make details of the election case public. Both sides have submitted filings on the matter, and the judge will soon hold a hearing. Meanwhile, Trump's legal team has been making media rounds criticizing the charges and casting doubt on the prosecution's case. And in the classified documents case, there will be a hearing on the potential conflicts of interest for the attorney who represents Trump's co-defendant, Walt Nauda. Judge Cannon's latest ruling on that issue also revealed that a grand jury in D.C., not Florida, is still investigating the matter. Joyce Vance and I dig into all of that and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing an excerpt from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the insider community. The thing that's been getting a lot of attention as we record this on Tuesday morning is a back and forth over the weekend and continuing into Monday. And there will be a, a hearing in the next couple of days on the scope. It sounds very le- legalese, but people are paying attention. The scope of a protective order in the January 6th indictment matter, meaning what, if anything, is Trump able to use or reveal to the public with respect to discovery he gets? And reminder to folks, discovery is just the material that the government hands over to the defense relating to what they're going to prove. It's the government's evidence. They hand it over to the defendant so that there's no trial by surprise. Exactly correct. And sometimes it's sensitive information. Sometimes you have witnesses who are in jeopardy or in peril. Um, you don't really have that in this circumstance, but you also are concerned about witness intimidation, coaching, witness tampering, that sort of thing. And sometimes the government seeks a protective order that's not abnormal, kind of commonplace. And there's an agreement reached with the assistance of the judge about what, if anything, can be released to the public. And here the government has asked for a blanket protective order of all discovery materials. And Trump's lawyers have said that's overbroad. It violates his First Amendment rights of free speech. And also, not in a crazy way, have suggested that, well, with respect to some materials that are sensitive, there should be a protective order, but not with respect to all materials. What's wrong with that argument? You know, the protective order that the government proposed is one that's been used repeatedly and recently in the District of Columbia in cases. It comes out of Judge Carl Nichols' courtroom. Nichols, a Trump appointee, has not always been favorable to the government in the January 6th cases. So I think prosecutors were trying to strike a non-combative tone here with a very unremarkable protective order. And although you're asking whether or not Trump can legitimately make arguments, and I think maybe there's some non-frivolous room for his lawyers to talk about the scope of a protective order, I think we'll likely see Judge Chutkin after this Friday hearing enter something that's awfully close to what the government is proposing. And the overriding reason is something that the government nailed in their reply brief, filed sort of at lightning speed late last night, where they say, look, we've read Trump's lawyer's brief. And essentially what he's asking for is permission to try his case in the press, in public, instead of in the courtroom. And that's not the purpose of criminal discovery. It's not something that we do to let defendants try their cases. 
the local rules in court in the District of Columbia, which the government points to in its reply brief, they're intended to protect two things. They're intended to protect witnesses and to protect the integrity of the criminal justice process. And Trump is trying to undo that, although I know that you have some arguments to make, and I think I'm willing to listen, that suggests that maybe for materials that aren't grand jury, there doesn't need to be as as much protection as the government wants here. Yeah, I just don't understand how it would work functionally. Or maybe there's too much attention being paid to this issue because it's, as you and I have discussed previously, it is not central. It's not central to the case. It's not central to the trial. We're spending time on it because there's a news vacuum during which people want to talk about every single thing that happens in the case and every move of a chess piece gets analyzed and reanalyzed and taken apart and parsed. But I don't think it's central. Now, the government did not seek a gag order against Donald Trump, right? Although he tries to call it that in his response brief. True. But but Donald Trump is permitted to talk about the case and he's running for president and he's raising money off it. He's permitted to talk about the indictment, which is a publicly filed document. And the indictment itself, although it's not discovery, makes references to the government's evidence. And so there's an allegation in paragraph 45 of the indictment that he can talk about and yell about at rallies or elsewhere. And then the government provides some additional information and discovery about paragraph 45 or about what a witness said. It's an interesting thing that Donald Trump can talk about some of what is public but not the rest of it. So I think here's what the government and rightly so wants to avoid. One of the areas that Trump's lawyers have identified is recordings of witnesses, right? So I can easily imagine Trump pulling a sentence or two out of context in a recording from a witness, playing it over and over and over at one of his rallies. And not only is that problematic for the witness, who Trump has now painted a bullseye on, it also potentially taints the jury pool by putting evidence that might not be admissible in trial in the public domain, or perhaps taking evidence out of context so that people understand something, Trump's followers understand something to be true that is not true. And it's tough, maybe, in some sense to know where you draw the line. I take your point that it's awkward for him not to be able to talk about everything. But, you know, just to take the point you're making to its extreme, Trump's lawyer, John Loro, goes on CNN on Sunday morning and says, we want the public to be able to know what all of the evidence is. This is an election season. Well, okay, then let's just go ahead and go to trial. And then the public can know what all of the yes, evidence that's, is. That's exactly the definition of a trial. I guess part <laughs> of this arises from, there's an incident on Trump's part where he posted on Truth Social in all caps, with an exclamation mark, you go after me, comma, I'm coming after you. Oh, it's just locker room talk. Come on. <laughs> and the government made a big deal of this in its motion, cites to it. It's not 100% focused on this issue of the protective order, but does surface to the court and surface to the public this track record that Trump has of directly or indirectly trying to influence witnesses and present a combative an intimidating posture, right? Do you think that as Trump's lawyers suggest, this is just a generalized political statement or is it a statement of intimidation? Yeah, so this is a threat. 
I read it as a threat. I don't know how you wouldn't read this as a threat, but I like the government's approach here. The government didn't go and ask for a gag order, which would have been premature at this point in time, but they also didn't just let it go. They sort of bootstrap it into the motion for the protective order, which they were going to file in any event, and it does something very important. It puts this post into the record in this case, because when an appellate court sinks their teeth into this case, and I suspect that they will sooner rather than later, because it seems clear that Trump is not going to get through the pretrial period without doing something that requires the court to take him to task. And when that happens, the record will include stuff that the appellate judges can look to to say, well, yes, discipline was warranted starting with this point in time where, where Trump began to issue threats. Appellate courts can't just consider everything that you and I see and, and that we know. They're limited to what's in the record. Government's doing its job here of building a record. Yeah, I mean, look, it's obviously a threatening statement. Trump has a history of making statements that he can say, go up to the line and don't cross the line. But in the context and given the timing and what other things have been going on, it's obviously meant to intimidate and to threaten, although, you know, not in detail. And his lawyers can make a somewhat half-straight-faced argument that it's generalized political speech. We'll see how that plays out. But isn't that always the problem with, with Trump? You make the straight-faced argument, people are deferential, they bend over backwards to give him the benefit of the doubt, and then you end up on January 6th with rioters storming the Capitol. We have talked in the past, you and I, with respect to the Mar-a-Lago documents case, whether Eileen Cannon, the judge in that matter, the government should think about asking her to recuse herself or disqualify her based on overly favorable rulings she made against the weight of the law and the facts in favor of Donald Trump. Now, in the January 6th matter that's pending in the District of Columbia courthouse, the judge is Tanya Chutkin, and Trump himself has gotten out ahead of his lawyers and said in very strong language, she should recuse herself because she's an anti-Trump judge. Interesting, right? Because his lawyers have not said that. His lawyers, I think, walked it back a little bit and said, well, he's speaking as a lay person, talking about recusal. And of course, we'll consider the legal standards, which is to say they won't be making that motion. It's a stone cold loser. But it is a good opportunity to think about why you might ask a judge to recuse, something that I've only done a handful of times in my life and have always been successful when we've made the ask. And that's because I think you have to think about recusal in this very narrow sense. You know, a lot of times judges rule in ways that you don't like. I mean, that's why a case is in front of a judge in the first place, because the parties can't work the issues out. Well, every ruling, every ruling of consequence disappoints one side or the other. Exactly. <laughs> by, by definition. And that's that's not the framing for recusal. Recusal is about whether or not the judge has such a strong appearance of bias that a reasonable member of the public peeking in at the case wouldn't have confidence that the judge could be fair. It is an extremely high bar. In my view, Eileen Cannon passed it in the way she handled the Mar-a-Lago case, this crazy, you know, civil case that Trump files. There's a process for challenging the execution of search warrants, but Trump does something that's not merited. It slows the government's investigation down, hamstrings it for months, and then the 11th Circuit finally, I think we have called it bench slapping in the past, they tell her, you didn't have any 
authority to even consider this. It should have been dismissed out of hand. That's so far out of bounds for a judge that it does give you concern down the road. With Judge Chutkin, I mean, I think we should think about her background. She ruled on this case about turning over some of Trump's papers to the January 6th committee, and she had this sentence near the end of her order where she said, presidents are not kings and Trump is not president. And so you have to think about whether that rises to that level of bias. And here's the problem that's insurmountable for Trump's lawyers. Judge Chutkin did not get reversed. Her ruling, although it went against Trump, was a correct ruling. And so what do you make of the fact that, that Trump is saying things about what should happen in the case, getting over his skis and getting ahead of his lawyers? It's, I guess, another example of how representing Donald Trump is a very difficult challenge. I've tried to think what would happen if Trump was just a regular defendant. You know, where's the line at which a judge would have had enough you know, he may already be over it just with the the volume of conduct. But I think in a normal case, a judge would bring a defendant in and say, you know, look, buddy, not for nothing, but we're serious about giving you a fair trial and we're serious about giving the people a fair trial. And so let me draw some bright lines for you. And it, the next time you cross over them, you know, something will happen. Gag order, revoking your, your pretrial bond, whatever it is, but there are consequences. I, you know, it's, this is just all so dicey with someone who's simultaneously a political candidate. But at some point, judges in the Trump cases will have to decide whether or not Trump really is like any other defendant or whether he can just do whatever he wants up to and including the trial. Do you think the trial will take place in West Virginia, as Trump's <laughs> lawyers suggest it should? It's so, it's so interesting like, to, to pick a particular spot on the ground that the jury pool in D.C., is going to be antithetical to Trump. Let's pick a deep red Republican stronghold, right? I mean, come on, Preet. You and I both lived in D.C. for significant parts of our lives. It's great to paint in a broad brush, but jury pools, you know, juries don't vote the same way that political bodies vote for candidates. And there are people who live in the District of Columbia who are not crazy liberals, people who voted for Trump, people who are willing to keep an open mind when they sit as jurors and will take that oath in all fairness. So, yeah, we used to spend a lot of time going white water rafting in West Virginia. It is absolutely beautiful. It is one of the most conservative, non-diverse places that I have spent time. And I say that advisedly as someone who lives in Alabama. So I think Trump's suggestion of West Virginia means just exactly what we all know. It's just interesting. So every time there's a significant case whether it's related to Trump or anyone else, the question always arises if it's gotten a lot of publicity. And if it's gotten a lot of publicity, we're often talking about it. Can there be a fair trial in the place where the alleged crime happened? And everyone loves to talk about change of venue and change of venue and change of venue. In practice, I mean, in seven and a half years that I oversaw the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, I don't recall a single change of venue motion being successful. And that's thousands of prosecutions. Very, very rarely. Occasionally, we would get a, a, a motion for a change in venue called a change of venue for forum nonconvenience. That's sort of voluntary up to the judge and based on convenience of the parties. So if, you, if all of your witnesses were in West Virginia, well, then maybe. 
but that's not the case here. The reality is in the very rare cases that I can think of where the venue has been moved, it's because all of the judges in a particular place had conflicts. Right. And that can happen usually when you have a small courthouse with not a lot of judges. Yeah. Don't have that issue in the District of Columbia. There are many. Not a problem. So now let's go back to the sort of bread and butter of the January 6th indictment. There's a legal issue conceptually that a lot of people are having trouble with. We have talked at length about how the indictment goes out of its way to paint a picture of Trump certainly having the knowledge that he lost the election. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.